If you will turn, <clears throat> excuse me, to Joshua chapter 1, uh, we're going to start a new book this morning. Uh, we just finished up 2 Timothy. Uh, now we're bouncing back to the Old Testament. Uh, over the last couple years, we've, we've looked at Genesis through Deuteronomy. Uh, now we're coming back to pick up uh, where we left off before we went into First and Second Timothy. Um, but if, if you were just starting from scratch and jumping into Joshua without any idea of what we're about to talk about, I'm just going to give you a, a quick overview of Genesis through Deuteronomy in a, in a quick uh, variety. In Genesis, what we find is, is uh, the God who is over all of creation and, and, and exists outside of the universe that you and I know, out of nothing created everything that we see. Uh, and all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, all-sufficient, needing nothing, God created everything. And he created uh, not just all of the things that we see when we, when we drive from here to Kalispell that take our breath away, uh, or when we see pictures of things around the world and go, wow, that's really incredible, uh, or the animals that are just super complex and all of those things, but he also created people. And he created people to know him and to walk with him, right? He created people for a special relationship with himself so that we would exist to know God and to walk with him all of our days. But beginning from the very beginning of Scripture and to, to, to throughout today, what we find is that the people who were created to know God and to walk with him did not do that. Instead, they pursued their own desires, their own way, their own agenda, and when they did that, when they sinned against this holy God, it broke relationship between the, this perfect relationship between God and people. And so what initiates from Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy is this picture of how God is beginning to set things right. Uh, it starts with a guy named Abraham, where God chooses this one guy out of all of the people on the earth. He chooses Abraham, calls him to himself, and tells him to go to an unknown place and to follow the Lord. And Abraham, in, in, in what we, we look at in Scripture, we go, well, that seems really easy. Uh, if we were to be in Abraham's shoes, is a, a completely foreign thing to leave everything he knew, all of his people, all of his family, everything else, and to go to an unknown place, unprotected, only following the promise that God was with him. And God gave Abraham three major promises that he would give him a land to possess in the future. He would give him blessing, and he would give him offspring more numerous than he could count. Uh, which is, if you remember in Genesis, this is a profound promise to Abraham because Abraham is old and has no children. And God provides a, an heir to him and his wife Sarah when they're advanced in age beyond the point where they should have children. He gets uh, one child, Isaac. And through Isaac, Isaac has uh, two boys, Jacob and Esau. And through Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons who become a nation. They become a nation while they're actually in uh, the land of Egypt and become slaves there, which is also something that God told Abraham would happen, that his family, his offspring, would spend 400 years in captivity before being brought back out, back to the land that God had initially showed Abraham. So Abraham was clinging to this promise of a land that he would or he would never actually possess. He lived in it in tents, but never actually owned it himself, but was told that his offspring would one day have as far as he could see. And in the land of Egypt, when the people are in captivity, God raised up a leader for the people of Israel named Moses. Uh, 
Moses was, and I'm not going to give you the whole story of Moses, because then it's not going to be a 30,000 foot overview, but you can go back and read in the book of Exodus, uh, that Moses from his, his birth was at risk of death from the Egyptians who were trying to wipe out the Hebrews, because they were fearful that they would be too powerful. And Moses' mother uh, devised a plan to keep him safe in a, in a reed basket in the river, uh, which was found by the king of Egypt's daughter who raised him in her household. Uh, and later in the book of Hebrews, we find that, that Moses, uh, sensing what God was doing, uh, had an idea. He was raised as a prince of Egypt, and yet uh, defending a Hebrew, he, he murdered an Egyptian, covered it up, and then the Hebrews threatened to expose him. So he runs away, 40 years in the wilderness, planning never to go back <laughs> to, to the Israelites, but planning to spend his life in Midian with his new family. But there in the backside of the wilderness, God calls Moses to go back and to be God's ambassador, God's spokesperson, God's prophet to the people of Israel, and to be his voice to Pharaoh, telling him to let his people go. It's now time for them to leave Egypt and head into the land of promise. Now, if, you, if you're somewhat familiar with Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, you know kind of what happens next, right? Uh, the, the Moses goes to Egypt. Uh, God allows his older brother Aaron to be the voice since Moses constantly goes, I can't do this. I'm not enough speaker. I can't do this. I can't do this. He says, fine, you can take Aaron, but everything I tell you, you tell Aaron. And God rains plagues down on Egypt because of Pharaoh's hard-hearted refusal to let God's people go. Uh, and later on in, in the book of Numbers in Deuteronomy, we see that God was actually not just waging war on the people of Egypt, but on these gods that they had hoped in. So all of the plagues are related to the gods of Egypt, and God releases his people through Moses into the wilderness. And what should be about a 40-day journey turns into a 40-year exodus or wandering because the people decide, I don't think we want to go into the land. Uh, Moses had sent 12 spies into the land to see what it was like the land that God had promised, and the 12 spies came back. Ten said, man, this land is really good, but there's giants there. We'll never do it. They're going to kill us. And they, the, the hearts of the people of Israel melted inside of them and said, yeah, these guys are right. There was two, a guy named Joshua and a guy named Caleb, who said, it doesn't matter what the land looks like. God has said he'll give it to us. We should go in and take it. But people being people like you and me, they listened to the ten who said, there's no way. We've counted the beans, and there's no way we can go in. And so God delivers a promise to that generation and says, not a single one of them will enter the land. They will die in the wilderness instead of tasting the promise of what I've given. Except for Joshua and Caleb and Moses. Until Moses also refuses to listen to the Lord and takes matters into his own hand at a different time. But Moses continues to lead the people. God continues to faithfully provide for his people even as they are not being allowed to enter into the land. So where we pick up in Joshua chapter 1, is we're picking up right after Moses has died, and Joshua is now ready to take the people of Israel into the land that God promised all the way back to Abraham. Okay, We're all up to speed, Genesis through Deuteronomy. I would still encourage you, the, the real version is better than my recap, so go back and read it. But if you didn't know anything, you are now at least cursory, you're, you're there with me, okay? So Joshua chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 9 this morning. It says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. 
Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now we pick up verse 1, it says, After the death of Moses, Moses has led the people of Israel for 40 years. If you just go uh, back, it might be one page or it might just be a a quick left-hand look into the end of Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 9 through 12. We get a a little bit different, fuller version of this, of, of the transitional phase, where it says, Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses, and there has not risen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord had sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Can you imagine following in those footsteps? There's nobody, nobody like him. There won't be anybody else like him until we see Jesus. And yet Joshua is taking the place of Moses. And one of the, this might be just a cursory thing, but one thing I don't want you to lose sight of is right at the beginning of Joshua chapter 1, we're faced with a reality. Everyone in this room at some point is facing a transition. Transition out of ministry into ministry, but really a transition from life to death. Uh, we are all on a, on a time clock that you and I do not control. We are all facing, like Moses, we are all facing a transition. Now, I want you to be careful on this because each one, what we find in Scripture is every follower of Jesus, every member of the church, every part of the body, each one is gifted and essential, but there's also a humility that comes where we recognize that not a single one of us is indispensable. All right, so, so hold this tension, gifted and essential. Like God, God in, in all of 1 Corinthians, in all of God's dealing with the church, every member of the body is absolutely essential to the health of the body. And yet, there's not a single one of us that God can't live without. There's a little bit of humbling, isn't it? That Moses, the greatest prophet in all of Israel, there will not be another one like him, and yet... Moses' concern when, he was, when, when the Lord told him, your day is drawing near, Moses didn't lament, man, I've had really good years as the greatest prophet in all of Israel. What was his concern? God, who will lead this people after me? 
And God had already been bringing Joshua along his side, but he had an eye for that day. If you and I, in whatever ministry capacity that God has given us, are facing at some point a transition, do we have an eye for that day to ask, what, God, what will you do when I'm no longer doing what I'm doing? In your family, what will happen? Is the concern for your family after you have passed from, the, from, life, or from death to life in Christ, is the concern not just on the temporary, but on an eye for that day. Lord, how can I invest my life in somebody that pushes them closer and further towards the Lord? If you serve on a ministry team here at LBC, there will come a day where you are no longer able to do what you do. Point blank. There will come a day where I am no longer able to do what I do. If you just like throw out the timeline, I'm I'm almost through the first third of my ministry life, another year or so, and then we're entering the second third. It's gone really quick, by the way. And and another thirty years seems like a really long time, and yet there is constantly the picture: what happens? Thirty years from now, are there people being raised up that will continue to faithfully steward the mysteries of the gospel here in Libby? You and I have no idea. That's assuming I get the time that I think I will get. That's assuming that you will get the time that you think you will get. Do we have an eye to say, we must be pouring ourselves into, praying earnestly for God to raise up more people? You and I are very simply, we're just stewards of a season of life. We are stewards of a season of ministry at LBC. By God's grace, this church has existed for 60 years. Most of the people that started the church in 1962 are not with us anymore. You and I, we we are stewards in a moment. And there will come a day, just as Moses died, and the indispensable Moses, like whom there will not be another one. And yet... The mission and the purpose of the people of Israel remained, even though Moses had gone. So then the question arises, Moses is dead, who will take his place? And we, if we had picked up in Deuteronomy, we would, we would know already that it's Joshua, but who is Joshua? Joshua first uh, appears as a leader of some of the troops of the armies of Israel against the Amalekites in a battle. Then he's later we see him as, as a spy into the land, one of the twelve that goes and scouts out the land of Israel, or the land of Canaan. He's assistant to Moses, who doesn't depart from the tent of meeting. But there's a really interesting thing over this, is that in Joshua, what we see is there's a faithfulness demonstrated over time. Joshua didn't just start off. Joshua chapter 1 is not, in other words, is not the first place or the first time we see Joshua. In the same sense, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1 is not the first time that we see the disciples show up on the picture. Right? They have been with Jesus for three years. Many of us maybe aspire for great things, but have we been faithful in the little things? If we were just to lay our life before the Lord, have we demonstrated faithfulness over time? To the things that God has laid in our, in our, in our sphere of influence, to the things that we could impact, has, have we been faithful with those things? Uh, I was thinking about just, you know, uh, I, I didn't all of a sudden just poof, um, become a pastor one day. Um, 
my first place of, of service in the church that I can remember anyway uh, was in high school as an usher. Now there's passing, passing plates, recognizing visitors, saying, hey, how are you doing? Seemed, if I'm honest with you, at times that, that seems not really important. And maybe at times you go, well, the, the, the opportunities to serve in front of me don't seem like great opportunities to serve. Uh, or the opportunities to, to share the gospel don't seem like great opportunities to share the gospel. Or the opportunities to come alongside of somebody who needs to be encouraged don't seem like great opportunities that lead to the things that I might want to have. But Jesus talks about this, right? The, 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 the parable of the stewards. Are, they, are those that are faithful with little are entrusted with more? Are we faithful with little? Are we willing to be faithful with little? We see in Joshua a guy who had invested himself into Moses and into the people of the Lord and into the presence of the Lord way before he was ever commissioned as the next leader of the people of Israel. But then it's interesting what comes next is that, that in, in a lot of respects, we would see Joshua as a guy who's been groomed and prepared to take over the people or the leadership of the people of Israel. And yet what we begin to see uh, that the Lord speaks to Joshua is the commissioning of what he is to do and also how he is to do it. He says, Moses is dead. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan. Can you just for a minute imagine what Joshua must have been thinking? Joshua was born in slavery in Egypt. He was one of the two faithful guys who, who, who stuck with the Lord and his promise in the land, in the wilderness. And now, after 40 years, and however long he lived as a slave in Egypt, now he's told, go into the land of promise. Go, now it's time to go. There, there's got to be at least, I would think, a, a, a mixed amount of excitement and holy dread. Oh my goodness. Right? Moses is gone, and now I am to lead this people. He says, Go over the Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward this going down sun shall be your territory. In other words, um, this is a huge promise. Joshua is one of now two living people who have set foot in the land. He has seen it 40 years ago. And now, go into it and I'm giving it to you. Every place that your foot treads, I will give to you. I have given to you. And notice the language of that. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread, future, I have already given to you. Your future activity rests in a previous promise. He says, as I promised to Moses. But even before he promised it to Moses, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, he had already promised it 400 years earlier to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, this is the call of Abram. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
and he reiterates the promise to Abraham a second time. He issues the promise to Isaac. He issues the promise to Jacob. He issues the promise to Moses. And yet now to Joshua, he says, go in and take the thing that I've promised to you. 400 years of promise in the making. Now go in and take it. Not only that, go and take it, but no person, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. If you go in, you follow me, you listen to my promise, you go after me, no one will be able to stand against you in resistance. And then maybe an even more incredible promise. If you think about the end of Deuteronomy chapter 34, no prophet ever like Moses, one who speaks to the Lord face to face, there will be none after him. And yet he says to Joshua, just as I was with, jo- with Moses, I will be with you. Huge promise, but it's fueled by God's presence. There will be none to be able to stand in their way because I'm with you. Not because you're Joshua the great warrior. Not because you're an incredible people all by yourself, but because I am with you. And because I'm with you, he says, I will not leave you or forsake you. This is a baseline promise of God's word. God does not abandon his people, period. God doesn't leave his people, period. Same promise, same presence as he gave to Moses. He now says, I'm giving to you. So one of the questions that, that might arise from this is, okay, we, we can see that God's presence was, is with Moses. We can see God's presence is with Joshua. But how do I know? How do I know today in 2023? How do I know God's presence? How does, how does that look for you and for me? And I, I'd give you uh, three I think three scriptural reasons or three scriptural proofs that God's presence is with his people. The first one, and this might sound, you're going to go, when I tell you these three, you're going to go, wow, that's really profound. The first one, we know God's presence because of his word. When we come to God's word, we are recognizing that it is God's perfect revelation of himself to the people that he has created. In other words, it is God's way of, like, he speaks. It is divinely inspired. It is his very word given to people to know him and to walk with him. He tells us exactly what he is like in all of his holiness. He tells us exactly what he expects in his holiness. He tells us exactly how he has met the demands of his holiness by sending his perfect son, Jesus, to take our place and to give us life. He tells us exactly what our response ought to be to Jesus coming and dying for us. Then he tells us how we are to walk with Jesus in light of who he is. Like everything that God wants us to know about himself and how he is with us, he has revealed to us in his word. This is the greatest gift that you and I could possibly possess is God's written revelation of himself to us. If you ever wonder what is God like, open the book that he wrote you and read it. He has told you this is who I am. From beginning to end, this is what will happen in the future. If you're like fear of what might happen in the next next presidential election or the next 30 years or the next world thing that happens, how can you possibly have peace of mind in a world like that? Because God has revealed himself to us and we know how it ends. We know where our hope lies if our hope is in him. So the first of all, like we would recognize his presence because he has revealed himself to us. So if my faith is in Jesus, then 
when I am reading the Word of God, I am reading the very Word of God to me to help me to know how to walk with Him, how to know Him, how to relate to other people. Like, He has given the knowledge of Himself, who He is, to His people. So we know Him by His, his Word. But then, if His Word wasn't enough, He gives us with His Spirit. And, and before we get kind of... Uh, goofy on what what does it look like to to know the presence of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15, Jesus speaks about the work that the Holy Spirit will do in the lives of his people. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you. John chapter 16, verse 12. This is right before his, his crucifixion. He's speaking to his disciples, to his followers. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he spe- hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Notice that the work of the Spirit and the work of the Word are working in tandem. So when, when you read the Word of God and, and the, the Spirit of God attends to it, we hear the very things that God wants us to hear. He, he gives us, not only does he give us the Spirit as a witness, but he tells us that he indwells us with his Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, he says it's the down payment of the promise of eternal life is in us in his Spirit. What an incredible, like God gives his spirit to live in us, to bring understanding to his word and teach us how to walk in it. What an incredible gift. Like, not only does God give us the understanding or the ability to understand who he is from his word, but then he empowers that through the work of his spirit. And then the last way that you would know, like, how do I know that God is real? How do I know God's presence? We would look at the person of Jesus, that the perfect Son of God, eternal Son of God, without beginning, without end, through whom, by whom, and for whom all things are created, took on flesh and dwelt among us. Taking on humanity, stepping out of glory and taking on humanity, living among us, living a perfect life. And, and if you need no greater evidence of the presence of God, look to the death, burial, and resurrection of His eternal Son for sinful people. And you go, I don't, I don't know that God is with me or cares for me. You know how you know that God cares for a sinful world? He sent his son to take its sin to the cross and exchanging our sin for his righteousness. So the, the word of God, the spirit of God, and, the, and Jesus, the son of God, all evidences of God's presence with his people. But then if you, if you hop back into Joshua chapter 1, in light of God's promise to his people, all the way back to Abraham, to Moses, now to Joshua. In light of his promise and his presence, I will be with you just as I was with Moses. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. I won't abandon you. Then the next question is, okay, in light of his promise, in light of his presence, what does God want Joshua to do? And this is where we get purpose. And, and we talked about it, if you remember from last week, God has a, he, he gives his promise, his presence, and his purpose to every believer. We go back and look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. It says, all authority has been given to me, right? Provision, all provision. Therefore, go and make disciples, purpose. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age, presence. His, promise, his provision, his presence, his purpose to all believers in every generation. But what is the purpose, the specific purpose that he wants Joshua to do? 
Notice he says, no one will be able to stand against you, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Verse 6, be strong and courageous. Why? Because you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Is that a small task? Joshua, through you, you are the conduit through which this people will inherit the land that I promised all the way back to Abraham. But notice this. God is the one who is causing. He says, you, will cause, uh, you shall cause this people to inherit, but it's hinged on verse 2. Go into the land, you and all his people, into the land that I am giving to them. Verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. Verse 5, no one can stand before you. Why? Because I am with you. So when, when we get finally to the purpose of through you, the people, and it's only because it's already given by the Lord. Joshua, in other words, is the conduit of grace. So the question is, how is he to be strong and courageous, or what does it mean for him to be strong and courageous? If we polled the average person, what, what would they say being strong is? They might say it would be being assertive, or being determined, being proactive, being directed in a positive action or positive direction. Is, is, is he talking about uh, a physical strength? Like Joshua, hit the weight room. You've got to be strong. Take some protein. Manna doesn't have a lot of it. You need a little bit more. Go find some powder, drink it. It'll be great. You need strength. Or courage. I mean, if we just took John Wayne's definition of courage, right? Being scared to death, but swelling up anyway. Is that, is that what he's talking about? To be, to be just uh, uh, bold in the face of danger. But, he, but the question is, like, how is Joshua supposed to be strong and courageous? And I think what's great about this is that the Lord tells him exactly what it means for him to be strong and courageous. He reiterates, so verse 6, be strong and courageous. You're going to cause this people to inherit the land. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. Notice this, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. What does it look like for Joshua to be strong and courageous? It looks like for him to do all that the Lord has commanded him to do. In light of circumstances that would tell him, you may not have the resources you need to take the land. Just as the ten spies had previously had seen, ten out of twelve, had seen it and said, yeah, super good land. We, we would love to live there. Only one problem. They're going to kill all of us. So we can't go in there. Circumstances. The, same, the circumstances haven't changed. There's still a strong people that live there. And so for Joshua to be strong and courageous is to believe God's word in light of evidence to the contrary in front of him. Or that seemingly contrary. How do you, but the question, how do you not turn from the right hand or to the left of what God's word says? The very next verse, verse 80 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Living in the word, meditating on it day and night. God's word marinating, in other words, in our heart and our minds. Producing right action. 
And it, and it raises that question. So if we go back to one of the, the ways that we know God's presence is by his gift of revelation of himself through his word. And one of the ways that the, the main way that Joshua is to be strong and courageous and the purpose that God is setting before him. And, and I, would, I would argue to a great extent that the purpose that you and I are to walk in in Christ, fueled by knowing and living out God's word. How important is God's word to us? If God is telling Joshua, be strong and courageous, make sure that you basically, like, you breathe and live this word. This is the very, like, on my word hinges your very success in the land. How much of your life in Christ hinges on God's word? How much of your right action in Christ is fueled by God's revelation of himself to you? Hopefully the answer would be like, well, all of it. And he goes on to say, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. And we might, like the light bulb might, or the ears might go, bing, prosper and success. How do we get that? And the problem is, we often want prosperity and success of our own defining. When God says, do this and you will have prosperity and success... We want to. You'll be prosperous and successful. We go. Okay. How do I? How do I? How do I? How do I add that to my a la carte plate? How do we? How do we get there? By our own definition, we go. That would mean that the account is filled, the job is provided, the children are pacified. Whatever else the checklist says, like uh, these are the things that is prosperous and and successful in the world around me. Is that what God is promising to Joshua? It's like, if you will just follow my word, I'll give you whatever you want in the lamp moment. Just be careful not to turn to the left or the right, and everything that you have will go well for you. But we go back to how does God define prosperity and success for his people? And what we will see throughout Joshua and moving into the book of Judges and then into the life of the kings Oftentimes they have material success and material prosperity, and yet the Lord is not pleased with them. Why? Because they have abandoned God's view of prosperity and success, which is a people who walk with him in right relationship through his covenant, by his grace. To be successful and prosperous for Joshua is to go into the land that the God has promised and to have control of it, but to be in a right relationship with the God who promised it to them in the first place. So oftentimes our, our view of how God prospers and, and, and causes success in our lives, is, it's faulty because we have defined what prosperity and success is rather than letting God do the defining. And so he commands once again, he says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What do you think it means... That's the third time that God has told Joshua in nine verses, be strong and courageous. But then he follows it up this time with, don't be frightened, don't be dismayed. Have you ever told somebody not to be, uh, not to be scared? What were the circumstances when you were telling somebody not to be scared? Probably not peaceful, lazy river. Moments that they ought to have, like, and rightfully have a moment to be afraid and to be dismayed. 
In other words, again, God is prepping Joshua. There will be circumstances ahead that will cause you, if his view is wrong, if his view strays from the right or to the right or to the left, or it comes off of the Lord, there is every reason why he should be dismayed and be discouraged. Except for the God who made the promise and the God who fuels the promise. If that God is faithful, Joshua has nothing to fear, which, and that God is faithful. And catch this, God is not calling Joshua to a venture, a, a life, a venture outside of God's presence. Where he's just like, you got everything you need, buddy? Be strong, be courageous, go on out there and fight. It'd be like taking one of our kids, like in Mike Tyson's heyday, and be like, hey, be strong and courageous. You got this, buddy. Go get him. Right? What, what Joshua is being called to, though, is to be strong and courageous, which means a life... that is living in God's shadow, following where God is at work. Remember, God, God has already promised, I will be with you just as I was with Moses. I'm not leaving you. I'm not forsaking you. Be strong and courageous. I'm with you wherever you go. Nothing can stand against you because I am with you. Right? It's not a blanket promise that Joshua can just go do whatever he wants because, hey, God loves me and he has a great plan and purpose for my life. It is, go and do the thing I have called you to do Stick with me, and it will be fine. I would argue that God most often desires to call us into lives, not ones that live outside of his provision and his presence, but lives that follow him into circumstances that without his presence and provision would be impossible for us. God is calling us as his people to live lives that outside of his presence and his provision, they would be impossible for us to live. Outside of his provision of himself, there is no way that you and I could live the life that he tells us to live in Christ. There's no way that we could go and do the things that he calls us to do without his presence with us, without his provision. There is no way that you and I could share the gospel with somebody who doesn't know Jesus and that, that there would be any chance of that having any minuscule amount of, of success in changing their eternity if God is not arming it with his presence, his provision, his spirit. There's no way we can accomplish the things of God without his presence and without his provision. He is not ushering us into life to figure it out on our own, to just be strong and courageous and, and fight our way through it. He is issuing a call to us to hide our lives in Christ and follow him wherever he leads. And the temptation that comes in this, and you see it throughout, and it comes with this, don't be frightened and don't be dismayed. The temptation is to hear and even to see the promise of God, but then look around and see circumstances and go, I can't do that. And you're right, you can't do that unless he's with you. Unless his promise is true, the promise that remains, I will never leave you or forsake you. Right? No one will be able to take you out of the Father's hand. Nobody will be able to take you out of the, the Son's hand. If, if Jesus is truly with his people, which he is, if his Spirit is truly indwelling his people, which he does, then what impossible thing is God calling you to do that he will not see through? By yourself, you have, like, you have no hope. But if the God of all the universe who created all things and created you to know him and to walk with him and he has made you right through faith in his son who died in your place, 
And he has indwelt you with his spirit. He's empowered you with his word. And he's given you everything you need for life and godliness. What thing could he possibly call you to that he would not be with you and provision you for? And so in, in that scope of life, then the call would be this. Be strong and courageous and stick with Jesus. Be strong and courageous, know his word, and stick to the promise of his word. His word is for your good. Stick to it and find life. Be strong and courageous. Don't depart from the right or the left. Stick with Jesus. Be faithful following Jesus. At the end of your time, at the end when it comes time for you to transition from from life to death, from this ministry to out of this ministry because of age or health or whatever else, will you be able to look back on your life and say, I went where he led, I was strengthened by his provision, didn't always know the answers, didn't always know it was, was, it was coming, but he was faithful. Or will we go, I hedged my bets, I figured out the most comfortable way for me to get through this life, I figured it out, I charted a course, based off of all of the resources I had, I did what I could do. And yet you missed what only he could do because he was with you.